to the alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Warren, and usually with every episode, I, along with a special guest, uh, I'm celebrating and rewarding our favorite films of each year, starting in 1928. As I've said before, we discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate, and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We'll be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also grow and change over time as a sort of tie into the Academy's evolution over time. But we are going to be uh, starting something a bit different today. This will be the first episode of our Gene Arthur miniseries. And today I'm going to be talking about the film The Devil and Miss Jones from 1941. My guest today is going to be Emily Bukowski. She is the author of the book reviews by A Chick Who Reads Everything website. Hi, Emily. Um, welcome back to the show. Um, I almost forgot to mention that you were the guest for the 1933 episode. Yes. Uh, thank you, Gabe. It's, it's great to be back on. Uh, we had such fun times in the 1933 episode, and I look forward to talking about The Devil and Miss Jones. Yeah, it is an interesting film for a lot of reasons. But first, I'd like to ask you, um, how are you doing today? How's your day been? Oh, it's been good. Uh, so I've been doing a lot recently because I am getting married this Friday. So I'm just uh, getting everything together, but luckily I managed to have a chance to go to Yomacon this year. So oh, I'm just, just so happy that I managed to do that and just dance the night away, and as well as play some games. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, and I hope everything goes well. Oh uh, yes, thank you. So, um, as I said, today we're going to be talking about the Devil and Miss Jones, and I guess I'd like to ask you first, what is your history with Gene Arthur? You know, and, oh, sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead, sorry. So I don't really have much of a history with Gene Arthur. I mean, I've seen, well, I've seen clips of like other films like You Can't Take It With You and uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but, the thing I have more of a history with is with the director, our favorite journeyman director, Sam Wood. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we can definitely talk, we'll definitely talk about how this fits into his filmography, almost an outlier of sorts. And, but yeah, I guess with Gene Arthur and me, this is really my first year really diving into uh, her filmography in depth. I still have to see Shane, which I believe was her last movie. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, watching the classics, like the More the Merrier and The Foreign Affair and um, her Frank Capra movies really introduced me to a really modern actress in a lot of ways. So, yeah, that's one of the great things I did this year. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, even uh, Be Kind Rewind uh, did an entire video on the foreign affair, and now it makes me want to watch it. And you're definitely yes, I definitely recommend it. Yeah. And, Sorry. Yeah, you're it's, it's Gene Arthur and Marlena Dietrich, Billy Wilder. You can't go wrong. 
problem. Fantastic. You're definitely right about her being a modern actress because, like, if you look at a lot of films from 1941 and even like during just that time period, like, there's not a whole lot of female characters that actually are have are spunky, and and like actually like do stuff. And I'm just glad that uh, Jean Arthur does exist, and I'm glad she did exist and left this wonderful body of work. Absolutely. She was definitely unique for her time, and even now, even more so, all these years later. So, the premise of The Devil and Miss Jones is a curmudgeonly businessman named John Merrick. The richest man in the world, also known as Thomas Higgins, played by Charles Coburn, goes undercover as a shoe clerk at his own department store uh, with the intention of ferreting out the leaders behind the nascent labor movement. However, he gets to know a kind colleague named Mary Jones, played by Jean Arthur, and her boyfriend, Joe O'Brien, uh, played by Robert Cummings. And he also falls in love with a, um, a sweet middle-aged co-worker, Elizabeth Ellis, played by Spring Byington. And he experiences a change of heart and perspective. So, I guess what stood out to me most first thinking of what stood out to me in this movie was just the premise and of this millionaire having a change of heart, as I just described. And it's so fascinating just viewing this movie in a modern lens and thinking about the wealth divide just keeps widening every year. And here we have this borderline socialist movie advocating for a bit less greed in the world just to put it lightly you're definitely right it's basically a movie version of undercover boss except the boss doesn't have to uh wear a ridiculous wig and put tons of makeup on yeah i found it very interesting how pro-union the film is but it's like its message is not really shoved down your throat like all it's asking is for collective bargaining and how like employers should really treat their employees well or else they might strike and create a dummy that will that will probably hang outside your house. Ah, uh, yes. And that is so true to real life. Like we've seen a lot of that this year with several companies having the base to bats, you know, companies like Nabisco and Netflix and John Deere. Absolutely. We've seen a lot of the corruption beneath their labor. And it's not just not paying the uh, employees well, it goes way beyond that. And this movie reflects that sort of reality in a way that can blend comedy without undercutting the potential drama. You're, just, you're definitely right about that. I mean, yeah, it does kind of have that simple solution, but it's something that it needs to be talked about. And, and I just hope for all the characters in there that there is a long run to it that hopefully uh, Merrick 
played by Charles Colburn, actually uh, maintains this relationship with the employees. So, um, just thinking about, um, what was, um, sorry, I was just thinking, what was your favorite scene from the film? Oh, that is a very good, very good question. Um, the scene that sticks out to me the most is when uh, Jean Arthur is trying to hit Charles Corbin over the head with a shoe. Uh, it's just, everything about that scene just works on tension as well as comedic level. And it was with the acting, with the music, and even like some of the shots they put in there. It just is like, you could tell like Jean Arthur is just feeling so many things, like finding out that Charles Corbin is a traitor, but it's like, but he's a friend, but, but I must hit him over the head with a shoe. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that, that scene is so, so much of it hinges on Gene Arthur's ability to have just a million different expressions on her face in such an animated way. And then she has to grapple with, should I hit him over the head or should I just forgive him? Yeah. <laughs> but then he does accidentally get knocked out and she gets even more horrified. Exactly. Oh, and that one detail I loved from that scene was where she goes to fill a, a little cup of water and the first cup she gets has a hole in it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh my. God. That that detail is just brilliant. It just feels so real. Like it's like oh, like just having literal freak out moment of that. Just throws it away and just gets the other one and then just just a little splash on it. Oh my! It was just so funny. Well, yeah. It just feels and... so real. Yeah, that scene was definitely a standout, and I also really liked the maybe more subtle, not the right word, maybe a more intimate scene, like them at the beach, um, Joe, and Robert Cummings' character, and Mary, Gene Arthur's character, and Merrick. And I think that is a really good sort of bonding moment for that trio we get to learn a bit more about them and not just what they do but just who they are as characters and i feel like that's a pivotal moment for them all changing a bit in terms of perspective particularly merrick who i would say is our main protagonist along with mary he definitely is yeah, and you're talking about the first beach scene where everything's crowded and they uh, drink the wine. Yes. Yeah, that, that was a really good one, uh, especially when they're just crowded. Like, they're able to have this very intimate, like, like we find out more about them while being surrounded by so many people on the beach. It's amazing how they managed to find that kind of intimacy. 
Definitely. And Yeah, I just like the way that scene is set up and how it allows for the actors to build really natural chemistry because this movie, as great as its screenplay is, really depends on the um, actors having really good chemistry. And I think the three of them, even Robert Cummings, do sell you on sort of the friendship and even romance that blossoms between three of them. No, absolutely. And even if it's just like people just like like falling on top of each other, it it, it just feels so natural. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. Like it's nice Definitely. touches and a little bit of nice moments it's beautiful yeah and there are other details about this film such as he almost fails the minimum intelligence test despite being the richest man in the world and being in charge of this shoe department store. It honestly makes you question how he got that, um, he got to that level in the first place. You know, the funny thing is I was under the impression that it was the detective that took the test first because it was the detective that got the job but hadn't formally started. Uh, I may be misremembering. But, but still, the funny thing is Still, it's still funny that even all those people would would nearly fail a test to actually being a shoe clerk. Yeah, and they're supposed to be good at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I really also enjoy the scenes where Charles Tolbert is uh, really trying to prove himself as a shoe clerk, but ultimately fails. Like. Even the back of the DVD cover that I have here with one of the posters, even as one point has the, this sentence. Once he himself, Merrick, is subjected to the humiliating treatment by the department supervisor, Hooper, Merrick starts to wise up and soften up. Which is like, uh, it's not entirely humiliating. I mean, it is humiliating to him, but that's because he mainly brought it onto himself. I mean, the rest of that kind of description is a little misleading sometimes, which kind of makes you wonder about the marketing for this film. Because I was looking at the, like some of the posters they had like during the time period and even descriptions, even the opening credit sequence, they all seem misleading. Like, I mean, a lot of the posters is just basically this, this of Jean Arthur tilting her head back and laughing, which is that, okay. Yeah, it shows that Jean Arthur's in this film, but it's, it's misleading. It doesn't tell you anything else about the movie. Even the other poster, which features other characters in various poses and 
even one in where Gene Arthur's wearing a bathing suit that doesn't appear in the film. It's, you're not really sure what you're going to get. And maybe that was a good thing or a bad thing. Like maybe they were trying to hide uh, what the movie was about, but who knows. Um, but it's funny, like when you mentioned like the Gene Arthur posters, I just remember all those incredible posters for the more the merrier. Yes. And was it Zita that had a uh, posted them on Twitter? Um, I think it was. All right, yeah, I think yeah, I think it was her. Like now, that's a good poster there because you really want to know. Like you don't really know what goes on, but you really want to know what actually happens. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I have mentioned uh, Charles Coburn, and I just really like his performance. He brings, he really nailed his certain thing as a character actor, and both of his movies with Gene Arthur, he really has great repertoire with her, and it's funny. On paper, it shouldn't quite work, but they really do make it work. And here, I think he adds a human face to what would be, what should be a very unrelatable character, but his usual flustered stuffiness sort of type just adds humor and a sort of humanity to this character. And he also has just such a natural chemistry with Gene Arthur. It feels shockingly natural and modern for old Hollywood. I absolutely agree with everything that you said about him and as well as his chemistry with Gene Arthur. It always felt like it's like a father-daughter, more like the daughter teaching the father, like her ways of doing things. In fact, I don't know. Like, have you ever seen The Intern with uh, Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro? Um, no. But I have heard of it. I've heard of it too, and so it's like, I, I, even though I've not watched it, but from the clips I've seen, it kind of has a similar, like, relationship and kind of similar chemistry where it's like this younger woman who could potentially be his daughter teaching this older man, like, the ropes to this business and being in this older man who's like worked or I or in charge or in Merrick's case quotation marks air quotation marks on work to actually work this kind of low-paying job as, as and kind of thankless job too but yeah I, I just love that I love that it kind of shows that kind of relationship. And it, it's a little confusing because I just listened to your uh, podcast episode on the 1941 Oscars. And it's still a little confusing how Charles Coburn was nominated as Best Supporting Actor, where he's, as we both mentioned, he's clearly the protagonist of the story. Well, that was a certain thing where if you were a character actor, um, at uh, back in the day, you would be nominated as supporting, usually, even if you were actually playing the lead. And 
the movie stars got nominated in Lee no matter what, even if they were supporting characters. Like James Dean and Giant or Marlon Brando and Julius Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. But it's like, I'm kind of glad that we changed, sort of. I mean, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking of uh, Alicia Vikander in The Danish Girl, where she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, even though she was clearly the lead in that. She was clearly the protagonist. But... For a, but the reasons why she was nominated in Best Supporting Actress were because she had a better chance of winning. Nothing more, nothing less. I mean, that raises all sorts of questions. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, Ex Machina and The Danish Girl, um, I know, okay, I know they were from different companies, but um, did they not anticipate that? Um, did Focus not anticipate that Vikander was going to be pushed into um, supporting for Ex Machina, or I, that's just so weird to me how that happened. I don't know about that either. Yeah, before we get back off, before we get on the Alicia Vikander trail, let's get back to the Devil Miss Jones. Yeah, yeah. But, um, um, what did you think about the um, way that this department store was depicted? So it looks like a very nice department store. I mean, if I were in 1941, I'd definitely go into it. Although I noticed that like they're not wearing, like a lot of the workers are just wearing like their stuff. It doesn't seem like they actually have a uniform. And that was just some particular detail that I noticed because it's like, I wonder if they did it on purpose because there's another film that was released in 1941 that also took place in a department store called The Big Store, starring the Marx Brothers. You didn't think I was going to insert a Marx Brothers reference, do you? I have not seen that movie, but... Um... It, it's, it's one of their lesser-known stuff. And if you ever watch it, you probably would understand why. But I mean, it's, it's got some stuff, and even that takes place in a department store. And even at one point, they sing while they sell. There's even a musical number literally called Sing While You Sell. And, uh, was, and if, if only the people at the Neely's actually sang when, when they sold, maybe, just maybe they wouldn't be into a, maybe they wouldn't go into a strike. I don't know. You never know about these things. But, uh, yeah. Um... I can't really speak for how realistically this department store is portrayed in the comedy, but I think it is um, believable within this movie. And just thinking about this movie in context of other movies you could compare it to, like Maybe you could draw some comparisons between this and something like a Philadelphia story and just among the lines of uh, comedies that uh, from this era that have something to say about um, class and social mm. class structure and that like the upper class and how they are viewed and the need to take them down a peg and 
do you think this movie could be immediately compared to any of the um, any film from this era? That is a very good question. Um, I don't think any really comes to mind, but I do agree with a lot you said there, because yeah, it, there was a lot of films during that particular period where yeah, that took a look at class and wanted to knock down the rich at least a peg or two. And I do want to go back to how you talked about how the department store was realistically portrayed, which having, I've worked in retail and I can tell you that a lot of what happens, what happened at that department store is still very relevant today, especially when you're handling customers and, and sometimes they refuse to like try on something or, or, you know, like, you know, kind of insult the way you do things, subtly insult the way you do things. And I'm just glad I managed to get out of retail when I did. Ah, uh, yeah. And, yeah, thinking about, like, I don't know, like, a whole lot about retail, but I have heard things about a lot of retail stores, um, like dealing with financial difficulties, and it is at least interesting to think about, like something like Toys R Us, how that went into bankruptcy and closed. Yeah, and even with labor shortages that are happening right now, where a lot of like retailers and restaurants and like like entry job level, like businesses are experiencing so much staff shortages because of, for various reasons, including the pandemic, where people just realized that, you know, I could do so much more and, and left. I mean, it's a shame and that's why you need to have more patience with people who are working in retail. Even uh, I worked at Meyer. Uh, have you ever heard about Meyer? Um, I don't think so. It's a, it's Walmart, but more, a little more sophisticated, and it's a, it's a popular uh, grocery store like. Oh, Fred Meyer's. Yes, Fred Meyer's. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked at a Meyer's uh, for a few years, and they had. A, well, they had severe staff shortages that there was times where I would be looking over the department, it would just be me and one of my supervisors, and that's it. And then you're expected to kind of go to another department if, if there's a customer that needs you, and it could be a pain in the butt. To be very honest, and even have friends right now who are still working at Meyer, and even one of them, every time I meet with her, she always complains about Meyer. Okay. No offense to those people working in Meyer. All of you deserve the utmost respect. And Meyer was a good job. It was a, I, I enjoyed working there. This is just relaying some of my personal experiences. Yeah. Um, and connecting like this sort of these sorts of movies that Calm did on. Um, class and I'm not class structures in the rich 
it's it almost feels like we're having a sort of second wave of that nowadays with movies like Parasite and Us and Get Out and there's some other some oh, Knives Out those sorts of films again like responding to political turmoil like for the 1940s we obviously we had World War um, World War Two, and I'm not sure how much that connected with um, the themes of those films, but I'm sure you could draw a parallel if you really um, dug into it. Yes. But and even some of the laws that are being passed, because in 1935, the Wagner Act was passed, which allowed unions to form and, and practice collective bargaining, which is still something that's going on today. And I think there's a six-year difference between when that act was passed and this movie being released which I think this was just an overall response. And I mean, if that act wasn't passed, maybe we wouldn't have a movie like that. And I'm so glad you mentioned about Parasite because Parasite is just wonderful. And if you, and for those who are listening, if you haven't seen Paradise, or sorry, Parasite, please do, please do. It's, and it's just a wonderful thing about, yeah, that commentary on class and the rich, and there was something else I wanted to, I noticed when I was watching The Devil and Miss Jones was there was a little bit about gender, just, just a tad bit. It was just kind of more about, a little bit about gender hypocrisy, particularly when uh, the four men, I'm assuming that they're like the accountants, the yes men that uh, Merrick has. They're like negotiating with our, with our main characters and how I think, uh, I think it was Gene Arthur's character that talks about like moral issues and one of the men scoffs at the idea of moral issues. And then Charles Coburn was like, no, we have to talk about the moral issues. And they're like, oh yes, yes, yes. We must talk about moral issues. And even like some of the things that Robert Coburn says in the beach scene where it's like, oh yeah, the women take care of the men. And Gene's Arthur character, Flavently responds by throwing a piece of meat at him. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Robert Cummings' character says, uh, uh, the female's um, job is to take care of the males, and Gene also responds with, not this female. And yeah. yes. <laughs> Such um, a funny scene. Yeah, it's so amusing. Just a little bit on the gender, but mostly it's about, it basically pokes fun at the class. And how the yeah. yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a more lighthearted, um, uh, maybe not soft, but more comedic, lighthearted version of Eat the Rich. Or it's not as sensational as something that would maybe come out today, but it's really uncommonly smart. Um, and this was written by Norman Krasna. Uh, yes. Who co-wrote movies like Fury, Princess O'Rourke, and... And... Even co-wrote uh, The King and the Chorus Girl with Groucho Marx. Interesting. But yeah, um... 
I think he does, um, the script does balance, um, just a natural instinct for comedy that can be found, um, in these scenarios with almost considering, like, the real-world implications, like, when, uh, Gene Arthur's character instigates a strike through the speaker, ordering everyone to exit the building, when, um, that whole scene of Mary and John facing off against the corrupt businessmen is a stroke of comedic genius, especially with Mary and John. They eat the paper with the names on them. Yes, I love it. In fact, when you would ask me about one of my favorite scenes, that has to be my second favorite scene outside of Mary hitting uh, or trying to hit uh, Merrick over the head with a shoe. Because I love the just the sheer comedic timing of it. Whereas like, when you know that Mary is just going back, you know something's going to happen. And when she just slid on that table, it was like, okay, we're in for something really good. And how, and and just going, and, and you talked about a lot about uh, Norman Krasnodar's writing, but also the direction from Sam Wood. And I love how the scene is like, it emphasizes the stakes while also finding the, com- the comedy in the situation. Like, yeah, you have like those, the men trying to like grab at the, uh, the, the papers, but you have Mary and Joe eating them, like putting the paper in their mouth and then eventually locking them out. It was, that was just perfectly timed, perfectly paced. It was just pure, wonderful chaos. Yes, chaos is the right word. Some of those scenes were just kind of devolved into things happening and they're physically struggling and shouting a lot and it could have just gone into that but the jokes that land are actually funny and that's what makes a scene like that work if you don't have jokes that are funny it'll just evolve into noise and annoying noise at that but this scene really knows how to make all the comedic timing land exactly and you mentioned Sam Wood, and this is um, interesting because um, just go uh, just deep diving into Sam Wood's um, repertoire. He was really known as um, uh, like a journeyman, a worksman, um, who didn't really have much of his own style. He did uncredited work on Gone with the Winds, <clears throat> um, as did George Cukor, um, and I think also um, King Vidor, but I, also, I could be wrong. Um, Fleming was uh, one of the directors. Uh, Sam Wood. Yeah, yeah, he was. Fleming had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, Victor Fleming obviously got the credit, but, um, but yeah. Um, this is an interesting addition into Sam Wood's filmography because it doesn't really match what um, um, his other films resembled. I know that's um, a weird way to put it because, like I said, he um, he was a journeyman who um, mostly just took whatever the, um, whatever the studios handed him, 
but yeah, what I find most interesting is that this is devoid um, of the sentimentality um, that was um, in movies like Our Town and Kitty Boyle and um, Goodbye Mr. Chips. This is, um, for the most part, relatively unsentimental. And here I think this is um, probably his best directing next to, say, um, A Night at the Opera. I think he's very efficient when he works in comedy. Yes, and I definitely agree. I mean, it's interesting that you use the word sentiment, not now it's unsentimental, but, but yeah, it's like the more I think about it, it's, yeah, like it doesn't like see like pro-union, like, or labor unions as like, uh, through a rose-colored lens, it's, it's pretty realistic about it, yeah, and, and, and talking about the journeyman stuff, is that, I mean, yeah, he had no style. And so, yeah, so that's why kind of his body of work is very much slightly all over the place. But I do want to mention that there was, Leonard Maltin had called Sam Wood a specifically a producer's director, as in the producer tells him what to do and he, do, and he does it. And what he did was very effective. I mean, you can't say like, he doesn't have like really good shots. Even when I first watched uh, The Devil Miss Jones, I I made notes of all like the shots that were used in there, particularly in the very beginning where you have the low angle shots of the cars that were pulling up. And even the scene where uh, Merrick is talking with the detective, just from the angle from Merrick's point of view, just sees how small the director, or sorry, the detective is. And I thought those were, they were well shot. It's uh, just trying to gather some thoughts here. It's when Sam Wood, I think the problem is when Sam Wood assumes some form of producer role, that's when it kind of falters. And A Day at the Races does have, um, it, even opening credit sequence, it does say a Sam Wood production. So that's how we know Sam Wood was a producer on that. And it's not as good as it, I mean, obviously it's not as good as A Night at the Opera. And I'm glad you did mention that because as from all the films I have seen that were directed by Sam Wood, that's easily the best one that he has directed because of not only it's the plot and comedy, they're basically working together. But it's, as I mentioned earlier about the, uh, the scene where uh, Mary and Joe are, eating the paper, Sam Wood really likes to emphasize the stakes in the situation while also maintaining the comedy. And it kind of makes me wish that he could have stuck with comedy because he is good at it. But I mean, I have a feeling that he wanted to be the next Cecil B. DeMille because he was an assistant director to DeMille himself. That's just my feeling on it. Now it makes sense why he would direct something like, direct and produce something like For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> there's something I have um, to tell you about that. Just, I just want to, this is just off topic, just for one brief bit. I'm actually reading For Whom the Bell Tolls now. Ah. Uh, yeah. I've never read it. I've just seen the movie. And. I'm aware of your feelings on that. I saw your thread on Twitter and I, I got very concerned. I just uh, want to hug you. It just sounds. I'm preparing myself to see this movie, so I just want to give you the biggest yeah. hug on the entire planet. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, I. It's uh, just trying to measure its badness. Like, it's definitely terrible, but is it the worst? Um, it at least looks fine. I mean, like, beautiful cinematography, in fact. It looks gorgeous, but there's just nothing going on. And you mentioned you're reading the um, novel. It really seems like one of those um uh novels i'm supposed to like respect because of its importance but i don't know something about it just keeps makes me relatively unexcited to whenever i decide to read it but yeah movie's bad and it's just so boring i had that feeling about that because even reading the novel, and there's a lot of talking in the novel, which that like if it's talking in the book, then it kind of makes sense, you know, just have much dialogue and even even uh, some of the characters' thoughts that may not always translate to film. I get that, but yeah, when you have so much talking in a movie, it's come on, it's a visual medium. Give more visuals and stuff. But I did, I'm glad that you'd have mentioned about the, uh, this, like, how it looks good. And the more I think about with Sam Wood's discography, there's two things that, may, that Sam Wood is absolutely good at. One, he makes things look good. Even uh, stuff like, um, even the musical number Blue Venetian Waters from A Day at the Races, which is just overly pretentious, but hey, it looks fabulous. I mean, it doesn't make me want to do some of the dancing. Absolutely. But does it have a place in the Marx Brothers canon? No, absolutely not. Because it's just boring and even the song is forgettable. Two is there's a lot of good performances in his films. I mean, we talk about with Gene Arthur and Charles Coburn, but even in other films like um, uh, like um, goodbye, like, Mr. Chips. Yes, goodbye, Mr. Chips. And then I feel that's really good in that. Yeah, and I'm sure he definitely deserved the Oscar for that. Although my personal thing is, I kind of wish Clark Gable got it, but I understand that it was a very uh, tough race during the Best Actor category of 1939. Yeah, um, James Stewart was actually back when they revealed like the results. They revealed that James Stewart was the favorite. And Donat was, um, he was a close second behind Donat, who ended up winning. So, yeah. Yeah, so it just kind of, it makes me believe that Sam Wood is like, he's good with, like, making things look good. And then 
like bringing out the the best of the performers. And you definitely see that in The Devil and Miss Jones. Yeah. Um, not to harp too much on Burma Bell Tolls, but um, oh, geez. <laughs> I almost wish that Cecil B. DeMille had directed it, say what you want about him, but he could have at least brought some sensationalism to the project. Yes, even that, Um, yeah. What were you going to say? Uh, yes, uh, I, I agree. I think that would have been a lot more interesting, even after seeing uh, The Greatest Show on Earth. Because, I mean, at least a lot of the spectacle was really good. It would have been made for a really good documentary, but I will save more of my thoughts on that when we talk about the 1952 Oscars. Um, that, well, I'll just save my um, reservations for when I actually get to watching that. But yeah, um, I think The Devil and Miss Jones in context of his filmography does work for, um, keeping a somewhat smaller scale, but also um, actually managing to punch up in um, in its plots with all the social commentary and the character development and just the comedy. Like, this, it's such a funny movie. And that's why it works. absolutely like and even at 90 minutes like it doesn't overstay its welcome like every scene like it does pack a punch like each scene does uh at least it doesn't like it doesn't get too long which is the main problem of a day day at the races it gets way too long even for a two-hour movie it gets too long but at 90 minutes the devil and miss jones just that's that's the right amount of runtime that you would pack in so much social commentary and so much comedy in there, and even uh, build relationships among your main characters. Yeah. So, um, I guess one last thing I want to wrap this uh, episode up with was um, this was a co-production between Frank Ross, um, the producer, and Gene Arthur's husband, and Norman Krasna. And the three of them actually borrowed um, 600,000 from from a bank to finance this film. And this was actually um, one of only two films they made from that production. The other one was John Wayne and- Oh geez. I just feel bad for Gene having to work with him. Like I feel bad for Eddie. Um, leading lady who wants to work with him like mm. he seems like the biggest douche just <laughs> ignoring his so i apologize ignoring even ignoring just his politics and that he just seems like okay he seems like the adam levine of his generation <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> has this reputation for being really unprofessional and just being really um, arrogant and full of himself. Oh. And 
and John Wayne just gives off that same energy to me, just from what I've seen seen of him. He's capable of giving a good performance in, in something like Red River, but he does seem, like, very full of himself. Yeah. I mean, I, I've only seen him in The Quiet Man, which I thought that was a pretty good performance. But, yeah, even... Even one of my notes from The Quiet Man was basically, is he any better than the brother played by Victor McLaughlin? Is he any better? Because just the way he sometimes handles Maureen O'Hara's character is... (sighs) 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 Yeah, and even uh, John Wayne's reactions to High Noon were like, yeah, you know, the more I think about it, and I hate to, well... I mean, I hate to bring up politics as this, but since we are talking about a movie that's pro-union, I might as well say, it it surprises me less and less to know that John Wayne would have been a Trump supporter. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, he does <laughs> give off that sort of energy. Mm. Anyway, so... Um, yeah. I- yeah, what was the film that G. Arthur was in John Wayne? I'm curious now. Oh, uh, Lady Takes a Chance. Oh, I see. Sorry for getting off topic, but yeah, I guess John Wayne just does that to us. Um, yeah. yeah, and this was an RKO um, film production, and maybe that explains why it feels a bit more... Um, maybe a bit less sanitized than it might have been under something like MGM. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that would make a lot of sense there. I'm sure they probably yeah. closed RKO for that particular reason. Yeah. They, uh, RKO did seem like a company that was willing to give their, um, their filmmakers a bit more creative freedom. Um, uh, especially like Citizen Kane. Exactly. I was just about to say that. Yes, absolutely. And also the funny thing is that uh, uh, it's a bit of trivia, and I'm sure you probably know this, but the set that they used for uh, Merrick's Mansion was the same one used in Citizen Kane. And the funny thing is that The Devil Miss Jones was released in April of 1941 when Citizen while his Citizen Kane was released in September of 1941. So the first time you actually saw the mansion was in The Devil and Miss Jones. <laughs> yeah, so there was a lot of set borrow, uh, set reusing during that time, when obviously there may have been limited resources in the mix. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, exactly. So do you have any final thoughts Um on this movie as a whole? A couple. Um, You know how I was saying uh, a little while back of the opening credit sequence and how it's a little misleading? I mean, it looks great and it's it's definitely an attention-grabbing one. It's, uh, I think it's maybe even one of the best opening credit sequences I've seen, but it is still a little misleading because it kind of makes you think that there's going to be more fantasiful elements in there and even a little more screwball comedy than there actually is in the movie. But still, it's a, 
it's still an attention grabbing scene and it really does set up the kind of more sort the relationship that we might get but it's not like it's just an illusion so to speak yeah um i yeah that is a really um entertaining um opening credit scene and does at least do a good job of establishing the personalities of uh, merrick and jones um and again you know just expressions just and that way that she <laughs> blows out um the planes in merrick's merrick's background yes it's really kind of ingenious Really so, is. yeah. Um, oh, oh, were you gonna say something? One more thing. Uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed Gene Arthur's performance. At first, I was, I, I'm, I, I can be pretty nitpicky on this, but at first, I was a little iffy on the hair, like the hairdo that she sports throughout a good chunk of, well, throughout the rest of all this film, because like when I imagine Gene Arthur, I imagine she's always like the short blonde hair. But to go this brown and more shoulder length, it's like, I think it's one of your guests on the alternate Oscars uh, had mentioned how much he did not like uh, Barbara Stanwyck's hair in uh, Double Indemnity. It kind of gave me that kind of vibe. But at the same time, it, the more I thought about it, it really gives the spunk to uh, Mary Jones and how she's very much one of those spunky characters who's really assertive. And so, and now also proves that she's not like any other girl. Yeah. Yeah. It does establish that. So I guess I wanted to wrap up by um, going into its uh, sort of Oscar track record, because it did receive two nominations, Best Supporting Actor for Charles Coburn and Best Original Screenplay for Norman Krasna. Um, I guess I just want to go into whether we think it should have won either of them, given its competition, would we have given it any other nominations? So for Best Supporting Actor that year, um, Coburn's other fellow nominees in the Supporting Actor category were Walter Brennan in Sergeant York, James Gleason in Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Sidney Greenstreet in The Maltese Falcon, and the winner was Donald Crisp in How Green Was My Valley. So, up against this competition, do you think he should have won, or who was your favorite? Oof, that is tough, because I don't, I don't think I've seen any other uh, performance, but, but even what I've... Okay, I haven't seen any of the other performances, but knowing Sidney Greenstreet and and like the character he plays and how it was basically first established in Maltese Falcon. It's, it's a little tough on the competition. And that's mainly because I, I still don't think Charles Coburn should have been nominated as best supporting actor. He should have been in best actor, but given the competition, I don't think he would have won in that, in the best supporting actor. Yeah. Um, I of this lineup, I would go with uh, Sydney Greenstreet, but 
Donald Crisp is a um, understandable and very good winner. Um, Josh Goldberg, even though he totally would have been in the wrong, he's definitely in the wrong category, but he would have been a good winner as well. Um, Gleason and Brennan, they're there, but I think it's the top three that um, are really the solid points for me. Yeah, I think that would make a lot of sense. I probably would have put Sydney Greenstreet as the winner, although Coburn would have been pretty close. And the funny thing is, uh, I tried reading the book, How Green Was My Valley. I didn't finish it because it was boring, but it sounds like How Green Was My Valley is a very good movie. So I'm hoping to watch that movie sometime. And and I'm hoping to see how, uh, and see Donald Crisp's Oscar-winning performance. Oh, it's a good movie. Um... It's more than just a movie that uh, beats Citizen Kane. It's better than that reputation would suggest. Um, I've heard a lot of my yeah. uh, various outlets. So, um, and then its other nomination was Best Original Screenplay, um, where it was up against Sergeant York, Tall, Dark, and Handsome, Tom, Dick, and Harry, and the winner was Citizen Kane. Uh, I mean, it definitely deserved the Oscar nomination for that just on concept alone. And even some of like, even some of this like messaging on uh, pro unions, but mainly just, just the concept itself is just, I mean, there's not a film like it from that time that did it such an unsentimental, but witty way. And just, and, and, and pretty realistic too. Like every line packs a punch, the concepts pack a punch. But if all honesty, looking at that list, I mean, Citizen Kane has to be the winner of this. I mean, what could I say? It's Citizen Kane. I mean, yeah, a lot of people are just so biased, like for it. But it was such. It is still a very innovative film, and a lot of film goers, like well, filmmakers, still use that as an influence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Citizen Kane. Um, even besides it being it's even besides it being it the only win to represent Citizen Kane, it's it's still one of the best screenplays ever written, and one of the smarter decisions um, that Oscars have made because they've made some dumb decisions in this category. Mm. Um, Green Book, cough, cough. I'm hesitant to watch that one. Although, I, I love how we get sidetracked on this, but uh, my mom watched Green Book when it was in movie theaters and she thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm just like, uh, mom. <laughs> da, da, uh, <laughs> It, it does play well to that crowd, I suppose. Um, or just, oh, but it's a feel-good movie. It's, you're not supposed to think deeply about it. I haven't seen it, but from what I've heard, it kind of falls apart if you even, if you think remotely into it. Yeah. I've heard it's I'm, like driving this daisy, but in reverse. Mm. 
I guess I'll have to just see when I do watch that. Yeah. Um, Same here. Whenever, whenever I get around to it. I mean, I don't know if it'll be better than Bohemian Rhapsody, but... Oh, yeah. Fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I'm a Queen fan. And I am like, so no, I... I watch this film ever again, please. <laughs> so, I like, I question every decision. Like, casting Rami Malek who looks nothing like Freddie Mercury, and no amount of, like, cosplay is going to change that. I disagree. And that's... And for... For a couple reasons. One, yes, he does not look like Freddie Mercury. I mean, do I wish that Sasha Baron Cohen would have gone the role of Freddie? Would he have assumed the role of Freddie? Absolutely. But he does what he can, and he does adopt a lot of Freddie's mannerisms well, and he handles a lot of the dramatic scenes pretty well, too. I do think he did deserve that Oscar. Even if that Oscar was basically saying, here, we're giving this to a, a role, this uh, person of uh, the LGBT community who happened to be a person of color. Here you go. I, I think yeah. it, although I wish they would have done more of the singing like, I still remember a interview that Rami Malek did on Stephen Colbert, where Colbert had asked him to sing, but Rami was just so tight lip about it. It's like, you know, it's like, it's just, it just divulged in just pure awkwardness. And it's like, okay, maybe we're not going to hear some singing from him. And it turns out he did, but it was mixed in with Freddie Mercury's and Mark Malek's voice from, uh, from one of the official Queen cover bands. But I think what what Rami Malek was given with that script, I think he did try, he made it work. I think the acting part of the film was, was pretty solid, but a lot of the rest of the film, it's just, it's just so watered down. It's like, it, you could have made a far more interesting film. Like if you told uh, yeah. yeah. Um my mom loves the movie. Um I personally am less favorable to Malik's performance, but I guess I can understand if someone is willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and see some merit in that performance. I can understand that. But yeah. It's it's just kind of regrettable. Just the whole direction that movie took. No. But yeah. Yeah, that direction. I mean, any everything that Rocket Man did, like they did, like they took what both what what elements that didn't work in Bohemian Rhapsody and just made it work so beautifully. I wish Rocket Man would have gotten more nominations, particularly for Taron Egerton. Yeah. Wonderful. It, yeah, I would have been on board with. Um, I totally would have been on board with that. So, um, oh, let's get Emily, back. <laughs> yeah, um, Emily, um, thank you for agreeing to be on this episode and just talking about this little gem of a movie with me. I had a really fun time. Oh, absolutely. I'm thank you for having me on. It was a great pleasure in talking with you, and I hope to uh, talk with you very soon. Yes, I look forward to our upcoming episode on 1952. 
Um, so Emily, um, how can we find you on social media and your website? So you can go to, uh, my website is at chickwhoreadseverything.com and you can find me on Facebook with person, uh, or sorry, book reviews by a chick who reads everything. And you can find me on Twitter at EJB0092 and as well as on Instagram with Emily underscore Blakowski. Very nice. Um, so um, you can find me on Twitter at GabeTheJoker with two underscores. You can find me on Instagram at Gabe Warren with a single underscore. You can find me on a letterbox um, uh, as Mr. Hulo. And be sure to follow the Alternate Oscars website on Twitter at Alternate Oscars. Also, I'll have a Patreon page that I'll um, post in Post the link below, and be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake, and subscribe with whatever server that you use, and until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the Alternate Oscars.